you know, Trudeau didn't didn't like us, I guess, and did everything in his power to have us removed. But still, there was never a judge that deemed to be legal. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, uh, today we have uh, a really incredible guest. I know that everyone who follows uh, this show is going to be very excited to hear from him. Very, Someone who's very, very topical in the news. Um, but before we, we get to him, I want to talk a little bit about heroes. And and for me, if you're like me, you think that this is a, a, a term that's thrown about a bit too much. Uh, it's thrown at, you know, celebrities and, and sports stars and politicians and people who really in my view, don't really deserve that moniker. Um, not that there's anything wrong with having heroes. Uh, I mean, when I was a kid, uh, I had heroes. And, you know, pe- people like who are, you know, comic book heroes like Superman, uh, you know, hockey stars, and of course, my parents. And I still have heroes today. But for me, a hero is somebody who is uh, a leader and uh, who is someone who's willing, who has courage, and is willing to stand up for what is true and what is right, even when it is at great personal sacrifice. And the person we have on the show today, in my view, uh, fits all three uh, points in that definition. And his name is Chris Barber. Thanks for being with us today on Gray Matter, Chris. Thanks for having me, Leighton. It's good to be here. Chris is joining us from Swift Current. For those of you who don't know, the home of the Broncos. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I don't know if Chris knows this, but I'm originally from uh, Saskatchewan. Oh. Uh, they they ex- they exported me from Regina the, to save your <laughs> province. Uh, <laughs> I've been in Alberta since I was a young kid, but uh, a lot of I have a lot of roots in Saskatchewan. Uh, so it's great to have a fellow Saskatchewanian on the show. Um, so a little bit about Chris before we before we dive in. Uh, Chris is, as I said, from Saskatchewan. Chris is a, a longtime uh, trucker and trucking company operator, but he's better known as one of the people who conceived of, planned, and actually carried out the world-famous Freedom Convoy last year uh, in this country, which was a sign of hope and and freedom to not only Canadians, but to people throughout the world. Interestingly, uh, Chris is vaccinated against COVID-19, um, but he considers the vaccine mandates to be a form of government uh, tyranny. So we're going to talk about, about the convoy. We're going to get into it in some detail about how it came about, how it was conceived, and some of sort of the exciting moments that occurred. Before we get into that conversation, though, as we always do, we're going to frame our discussion with a few famous quotations. Uh, these are from uh, from from famous American statesmen, and uh, it's not for any particular reason that they're American, but I think the Americans, we can all agree, have a particular uh, in, in particularly inspirational concept of freedom. And so uh, firstly, from Thomas Jefferson, who famously wrote, I prefer dangerous freedom over peaceful slavery. That certainly applies to our guest today. Uh, next, from Abraham Lincoln, another famous U.S. president, uh, who, who wrote, to sin by silence when they should protest makes cowards of men. And finally, from the late uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, who wrote, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. Along with Pat King and Tamara Leach, uh, Chris was one of the three main organizers of the Canadian convoy protest. And in January 2022, he spoke of his ambition to persuade politicians to end vaccine mandates. On February 2nd, in the context of noise complaints from Ottawa residents, he released the written statement, our message to the citizens of Ottawa is one of empathy. So um, I want to go back to, let's say, to uh, the end of 2021, let's say around Christmas time or thereabouts. And I'm I'm interested to know, and I haven't really heard it said, uh, although I just recently read Tamara's book, um, which is going to be on our reading list, folks, uh, in case you're wondering. Uh, when was the idea for the convoy first conceived? How did that, how did the idea of the convoy, the concept of it first come about? 
Well, the idea of the convoy first came from uh, another social media and, and truck driver uh, named Bridget Belton from Ontario. So Bridget is a, an owner-operator, cross-border transport, who was going to lose her livelihood and uh, didn't want to get vaccinated. Myself, on the other hand, I'd, I'd already taken the, the pressure from the government and decided to get vaccinated. I've been I commonly tell people I've been in this industry for, for 30 years and I've been fighting really hard to keep the big carriers away from my customer base. So you, you fight with them as competition. You do good work, you quality work, you stay ahead of them like that. And then the government comes in and slaps this mandated uh, cross-border travel uh, on us as truckers. And uh, I just, I had to weigh the pros and cons and I fell for the mandates. I, 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 I became vaccinated. Bridget Belton, on the other hand, and a lot of the people that I work with in this industry decided they weren't going to do that. And uh, and something had to be done. We had to stop this or, or at least try and stand up to it at one point. So Bridget was the one with the original idea. She reached out to me. We both did social media posts. Mine went a little more viral, I guess. And then being from the West, we had the longest drive across the country to get to Ottawa. So uh, so that's how I kind of rose to, to fame there. Tamara Leach reached out to me about a week and a half later and, uh, and gave me her... Uh, her information told me she was she was really good at logistics and we needed a little bit of help. And so uh, right away then she started the, the social media accounts and the GoFundMe and and it just blew up from there, just completely grassroots. Unbelievable. Well, so so I want to talk about this a little bit. So uh, so people get a sense of this about how crippling this whole uh, restriction on cross-border travel was for, you know, for truckers. I don't think people realize, most people don't realize, I know I didn't until really until the pandemic came about, how the extent to which uh, goods are being, are being moved on the roads by truckers, like more than, more than by anyone else. Uh, Everything that comes off a train, everything that comes off a ship was on our train and ends up on a truck in Canada. And, and of course, uh, the United States is our largest trading partner. Yes. So all of this, 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 this mandate um, that, that, or, or this requirement of truckers that they be vaccinated was hugely crippling to tens of thousands of truck drivers, wasn't it? Well, and the Trudeau government likes to say that 10% of Canadian truck drivers are not vaccinated. I, I kind of, I think that's a fallacy. I believe it's closer to 30 to 35%. I know of, of a real big number of truckers that decided to go against the vaccines. And it just seemed like at what stage was next? We were, you know, when the pandemic started, I remember not being able to ha- have access to bathrooms, to restaurants. I had to put a coffee maker in my truck so I could get a coffee you think of the, the the trouble that we had is over the road long haul truck drivers using the bathrooms in parking lots, and it happened. A lot of us we had nothing. Uh, I remember coming home after a couple of weeks, first into the pandemic, and telling my wife, "I can't do this anymore. I'm not eating out of my truck like I'm doing. I can't use the bathroom outside like a like a wilderness animal." And uh, I lasted about a week and a half at home before I thought, "Yeah, I have to go back to work." So then. I continued on, but uh, I had it was a pain, and I don't think a lot of people know. For the ones at home that were in hunker and shelter in place, we were out there right from the start. So we were literally the heroes at the beginning of the pandemic, as well as you know the 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 nurses and the doctors and the police and all that. And Trudeau made us zeros eventually. That was the wrong thing to do. Yeah, you were publicly applauded in in the early part, uh, and rightfully so. Uh, but you know, we we've never really recovered from the disruption of our trucking lines, have we? The 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 the, the disruption in the economy in terms of supp- people call it supply chain, which is really a euphemism. But really, that that disruption in the supply chain w- was really the interference uh, of governments with with trucking, isn't it? It, it really ran really out. well. Yeah, yeah, it ran really well until government decided to keep pushing buttons and buttons and they continue to do that in different aspects right now, whether it be, you know, your, your carbon pricing, it's taking a huge hit. I know I just, uh, electronic logbooks and mandates that are constantly coming into the industry. They're crippling us harder and harder every day. I'm watching more people, you know, I'm a 30 year veteran of this industry and I commonly think to myself, why do I keep doing this? This is one of the highest regulated industries in Canada alongside air traffic. We were constantly under scrutiny, officers pulling us over and, and going through our equipment. Left it's in for safety. I understand that, but I'm uh, I, I run a tight ship and I make sure my stuff is up to date. And yet I'm still getting tired of this. 
it, it seems somehow in Congress, it, it, on, on one sense, it doesn't make sense. If I envision someone like you driving a big rig, you're all alone in your truck for hours and hours and days or even longer. Uh, why do you need to be vaccinated? You're not having you know, direct contact with hardly anyone. Uh, so, so why do you think that the vaccine requirement was focused upon truckers? That, that is the question that the government still won't answer. And I can tell you from experience up until January 15th of 2022, when we were crossing the border, um, you would, I would cross into North Dakota, South Dakota. There was no requirement for COVID vaccine passports. It was business as usual. Restaurants were full. Walmart was full. Small businesses were booming. And you crossed that border into Canada and it was day and night, day and night, Leighton. It was, uh, and that's what I couldn't get through my head is why do we need these band-aids in place when things are, are operating quite well on the south side of the border, but they're not in Canada. Right. So I've, always, I've said it from day one. I've said it now, make it make sense. And they still continue not to make sense in their, in their requirements. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, for <clears> those <throat> of us, uh, I would say, um, <laughs> and this isn't a, a nice term to ascribe to myself in the laptop class, you know, we had it pretty good, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, not not being required to to be vaccinated for work, although there are there are many lawyers I know who worked in larger firms uh, who, who were dictated to and and had to you know had to comply. Fortunately, I didn't have to. Um, but you know, um, I'll never forget the experience like you described of of just being treated differently, of not being able to go into into a place and get a coffee. Uh, one experience I had that this might make you chuckle. I was living in Vernon, British Columbia at the time. And uh, you remember these arrows they used to have on the, on the floor. This yes. one lady, this one lady caught me going the wrong way twice. And of course I wasn't wearing a mask because I, I'm me. And she just screamed at me, screamed at me. And uh, she was fully masked up and everything like that. And then as I was leaving the store, uh, I, I was walking out and, um, and, and she was standing outside the store having a cigarette. And I thought to myself, wow, like this, the world has yeah. gone crazy. Uh, okay. But you coming back to you, vaccine mandates focused on truckers. Um, you, you had the choice of, of, you know, of not getting vaccinated because, you know, you're the head of your company. You chose to get vaccinated. Um, have you ever regretted that decision? Well, of course I regret falling for, for, for the narrative that they think the government wanted to. One of the biggest deciding factors behind, you know, why this movement started and why I did this personally was I have a, I have a 20 year old son now. Uh, he was 17 at the time and he, he refused. He said, dad, my immune system, or he was 18 at the time. He refused to get vaccinated. He said, my, my immune system is strong and I don't feel that I need to get it. And to this day, you know, I've had COVID multiple times. I've survived. Um, my son, Jonathan, was in the truck with me or right with me when I had COVID, and he still yet to catch a sniffle. <laughs> <laughs> not fair, eh? No, you know, not fair. It, it says a great deal about you, though, that uh, even though you were vaccinated, uh, that you got involved and and organized and, and really spearheaded this, this convoy. That was uh, that was on behalf of of people who you know the, the, of the seven million Canadians, not just the truckers, but the seven million, at least seven million Canadians, who didn't take the vaccination. Uh, why did you Why did you do that? What 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 inspired you to to get involved with the trucker convoy at such uh, a high and a deep level? It did pertain to me in a lot of respects. You know, like a lot of the guys that I work with in this industry, we lost a lot of drivers throughout this mandate and when trudeau introduced that january 15th mandate for cross-border travel a lot of those guys that i've trucked with for many many years decided to find an alternative route they went canadian only they retired they sold their equipment they cut their, they shut their businesses down and that affects my bottom dollar now i can't i have a harder time finding employees that are willing to cross that border and i have we've struggled with that cross-border drivers we, we, there's still quite a few guys out to do that, but the quality in our drivers nowadays is significantly less than it once was. A lot of the guys have, have literally walked away from it. And so it's those guys. It's the Tamara Leaches in her industry. It's the Bridget Beltons. It's, I mean, even look at Danny Bulford. It's Canadians in general that don't feel that we, we should be mandated by our government. When does it stop? And then yeah. 
I remember Marco Mangicino was talking about interprovincial check stops. They were going to be going up for COVID. Do you remember that? And yes, totally unconstitutional, by the way. Yeah, trucks <laughs> started rolling, and, and that conversation kind of ceased. But if if could you imagine what would happen today if somebody wouldn't have stood up? Well, uh, it, it is it, it is easy to imagine uh, because we lived through it. And and the truth is, for those who don't know, if it hadn't been for these truckers, we would still be locked down, all of us. Uh, you 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 guys and and women changed uh, not only changed the the whole picture of of the COVID nineteen pandemic. I think you changed history. This is uh, the, what you did was by far the most important. Uh, you know, political demonstration of this century. I think arguably the most important thing that's happened in Canada in the 21st century. Um, and uh, I just, I, I applaud you so much for the courage that it showed. Going back to the beginning of the convoy though, you know, just, you know, getting into your truck the first day and driving, you must've been shocked or were you shocked by the <clears> response <throat> of of people, you know, being on the side of the road and just the sheer number of of trucks. I mean, uh, for example, I, I sponsored my, my father-in-law, his pickup, my wife and I paid all of his expenses because he wanted to go <laughs> 70, 74 years old. And he was there. He was there the whole time. Uh, were you shocked? Were you shocked when you realized, wow, this thing is just bigger than we could even ever have imagined. Oh. So uh, I believe it was the morning of the 23rd. I believe it was the 23rd. I'll maybe get my dates a little mixed up, but being from Swift Current and Tamara Leach being from Medicine Hat, we decided to do a little mini convoy from Swift Current. We met at the co-op card lock at about six in the morning and we drove to Medicine Hat to pick up Tamara Leach. We didn't know we were picking her up. She had a ride with her parents in her pilot truck. And, uh, and we seen the people that were standing on the highway waiting for us going West for crying out loud. And there was, there was a few people there. So that was the biggest concern was, is anybody going to show up? I'd got a lot of phone calls from friends going, Hey, why are you doing this? It's not going to make a difference anyway. There's nobody's going to care. And so that in the back of my head was, there was a little bit of nervous anxiety there. And when we met all the people at the truck stop in Redcliffe, they were waiting for us when we pulled into the parking lot. And some of the trucks come from the, from British Columbia and farther in Alberta and Medicine and Redcliffe there. And then when we seen traffic control, police closing the intersections down for us so we could safely travel through Medicine Hat and the people lining the highways in rural Saskatchewan and Alberta in the middle of nowhere, there was Canadian flags. You know, I, I always say this, that spending as much time in, the, in North America and the United States as I have, the U.S. has always had that, that pride for that American flag. That flag right. is always high. Yeah. And I thought, I always thought that we could do better in Canada with, yeah. with showing our pride to that flag. And uh, I've seen it. It was, uh, you know, like goosebumps just roll through my body thinking about driving through, you know, Moose Jaw or Brandon. Winnipeg took the cake for the amount of support that came out in Winnipeg. It was unreal. And even in Northern Ontario, where you didn't expect the population to be that vast, people were standing on the side of the road at 11 o'clock at night in minus 30 degree weather with the flags and bonfires in the ditch. And I am, the, the, the memories and the stuff that I've seen on that trip will live in my head forever. Uh, I, nobody can ever take that away from me. Yeah, I, I was amazed uh, at, at how how huge it, it became. And, you know, what, one of my concerns at the time was, um, was it too big? I thought maybe the, the police or, 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 you know, governments would try and stop you. Uh, were you, were you surprised uh, by, by the assistance that, for example, you mentioned the police, how they sort of, uh, you know, facilitated, I realize you know, there's safety reasons for them doing it, but, yep. but still they, they deserve credit. Uh, were you, were, were you surprised that they were so cooperative with the convoy? Uh, I wasn't surprised. I've always, I've been a guy that's always worked with law enforcement extremely well. Um, I've always respected law enforcement and speaking with the RCMP all the way across Manitoba, Saskatchewan and Alberta, uh, city police to make sure we had traffic control. Everyone was very compliant. Everyone, um, OPP, Ontario Provincial Police met us at the uh, Manitoba, Ontario border. I met him and they led us the entire way across Ontario and they switched out in every jurisdiction you know, to make us, uh, to make sure things rolled smoothly. And even in, when we rolled into Ottawa there, the OPS took over, Ottawa City Police took over and, and led us in. We had liaisons. We spoke with them all the way out there. We were in constant communication with them. It was, uh, it, everything came together. Everything had a purpose and everything worked in, in, uh, in unison. 
and to put that many trucks in a convoy, you got to think, and there was upwards of a hundred kilometer long convoy at some time, the safety factors in that keeping everybody's speed and making sure nobody had an accident. There was a, there was a lot of higher power at work to make sure that we made it that far safely. Cause I don't know if you could actually do that, put that many people together in a group and then not have an issue, but we made it there. <clears throat> and, and, in, and in the dead of winter. How, how, how fast were you able to travel uh, with the convoy that size? That was, uh, we reached anywhere from 60 kilometer an hour to 80 kilometer an hour. It was okay. very slow going. Yeah. And then in trying to keep the line tight too. So you, you develop a little bit of a, a opening in some of the places and you'd have to communicate with the trucks way back to uh, tighten people up or speed up or slow down. So people were safe. And, and then, you know, orchestrating your stops. Uh, I remember some, some people had to use the bathroom in Northern Ontario and we just kind of pulled the four ways on and stopped in the middle of the highway. And I remember Ben uh, Hobb with the director for Eagle vision studios got out his, uh, his drone and took video, video shots of yes. how long the convoy was. Oh, I remember it's, seeing uh, those. Yeah. Amazing. You know, the last emotional. time I can remember feeling uh, that same sense of, uh, of, of pride, the right kind of pride in, in the Canadian people and in the flag was probably when I was a kid and the Terry Fox run was going on. I had the same kind of feeling. Everybody was kind of cheering for him and pulling for him. Uh, but it was, uh, it was amazing the level of, uh, of interest in the convoy. Like were, were you surprised or were you aware that this was being, this was having international impact? We weren't really sure of its impact. We were so busy with uh, with the convoy at the time and uh, making sure we were all safe there. I I was getting messages from all over the place of people people communicating with me on, and just telling me how, how they were watching it from different countries and and we were having an impact and 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 then you get the emotional stories that people from the side of the highway were telling you about how desperate they were for hope. It, in that reach, I still get those messages to this day. I just received a letter here a couple of weeks ago from a lady in British Columbia that uh, that brought a tear to my eye. Um, I can't wait to share some of that stuff. It was so. Um, this must have been an incredible amount of planning that went into it. I mean, you, you didn't just sort of get in your trucks and you know run down the road. I mean, <laughs> this much. had to be. Is that the way it went? You just sort of figured it out as you, as you went along because you Basically. know it seemed, it seems it seemed to go so smoothly and be so organized and then you know you arrive you arrive in Ottawa finally then what what was the plan once you arrived well so there was a there was another it was a, a joint effort with a whole bunch of different organizations including myself you know Canada unity was planning some sort of a smaller convoy across Canada and had some sort of logistic plan there um, and then you know you worked with these different people James Bowder Pat King was involved with that um, and then Tamara myself Bridget and adopt a trucker in Ottawa Chris Guerra we all kind of everybody came together and there was a plan you know, stops along the way. They had uh, some sort of an idea where we were going to stop and plan. And then the Canadian people came out and met us at each one of those stops and made sure we had sandwiches and drinks and hot coffee or cocoa. Um, and then coming into Ottawa was the same way. It was a little different. I, I was uh, fully expecting to come into Ottawa and, and we had staging areas designed for us, which that turned out not, it didn't work out that way. So that was one of the big, the big things that I thought was going to happen that didn't happen. So then the vast majority of the people, like the huge majority of people showing up like they did, we uh, basically, we got lost coming into the city and, uh, and were able to find a clear path to any of those staging areas. So, which is to be expected, I guess, when you throw that many people together, right? Yeah. You, uh, you were famously quoted as saying that um, occupying Ottawa was never part of the convoy uh, plan. You said that at the national citizens inquiry Um and uh, so, so what was it like once you got there, um, sort of trying to coordinate this, these mass numbers of, of people and events going on, bouncy castles, speakers, uh, you know, wh what was, what was that average day like for you when you're in Ottawa at the, at the, you know, at the, at the Freedom Convoy protest? Well, my main priority throughout the convoy was safety. So my job, I kind of fell into the role right away, was making sure that I was on the ground dealing with the people on the streets. So the, the truck drivers were my main priority, making sure that uh, they were staged properly, they had everything. 
The other big thing we were were doing was working with law enforcement to make sure the emergency lanes were open all throughout the city. So I know uh, I know when it comes to speaking in front of the media and that, I told Tamara, I said that I didn't want to be the person in front of the microphone, but I would be the person beside the person speaking in the microphone, and that person then wound up being Tamara Litch. So right. I kind of found my place out there, um, working with the liaisons with the police. We There was a lot of hot spots where we needed to make sure those emergency lanes were open in case an ambulance or police or somebody could get through. So I spent the majority of my time running non-stop making sure that that was uh, that was a priority as well as looking after driver needs and that so every night we'd wind up back in the hotel room and discussing the day's events and what went wrong or what went positive or this or that and uh and like i said everybody had a place anybody that came to ottawa had a spot that they seemed like they fit whether it was somebody walking the door saying hey what can i do and we needed paper for the printers or somebody to hold the door open or somebody to stand at the door to make sure people didn't get in that shouldn't got in everybody had a job and everybody found a way quite successfully at, at some point uh, the narrative became that you wanted to talk to their prime minister or talk to somebody in power who could help to end the mandate. Um, and and uh, that became sort of a, a, a very sticky thing, didn't it? Um, and this sort of counter narrative started to rise up in the media, uh, saying that you were uh, essentially some sort of terrorists. Um, so so what was that process like of, of trying to meet with uh, political decision makers? And and uh, were you disappointed by the, by the reaction that you received? Uh, very, yeah. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't long into our drive when when we started hearing remarks from the Prime Minister of Canada calling us, uh, you know, misogynist and racist, white supremacists, and it, which was kind of really hard to take considering there was so many different cultures. And he's in calling background. parents that now, Chris. He is so yeah. so. And the one thing that I guess makes me most angry about this Prime Minister is he's so divisive and divisive and hateful and hurtful that. How could somebody with this kind of an attitude run a country like this and divide a country like this? It drives me nuts to see the stuff that he's getting away with on a regular basis. And when are people are going to wake up to this? We heard so many of those bad stories and all we wanted, I guess the main thing we heard from Canadians as we traveled across this country was don't leave and you've given us hope and we would like you to stay until you resolve something. And so with us sat on our shoulders heading out there, why wouldn't you want why wouldn't you open a dialogue with your Canadian people when there's hundreds of thousands of people standing in, in, in front of Parliament Hill? Is that enough to get people, the Prime Minister's attention to at least want to have a conversation? If we, we made the effort to come all the way to you, could you not have a conversation? But we learned through the POEC in Ottawa in November that their plan was to attack us that way through the media and by calling us names the entire way. So um, there's been a lot of stuff that's come to light and, uh, and, uh, you know, Rodney Palmer, he's a, a, a veteran CBC journalist, yeah. amazing guy. Yeah. And when he walked the streets in, in Ottawa and interviewed, you know, like who, who's, who's the white supremacist on the street and the Jamaican man says, well, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Well, yeah. And speaking, uh, off the top, I was talking about heroes. Uh, Mr. Trudeau would not fit my description at least. No. But at some point, this became a kind of a crucible, like a vice uh, situation where you're getting pressure to stay, pressure, you know, pressure to leave. And uh, this became a, a difficult situation. And I know in researching, um, you talked about this during your your testimony at the National Citizens Inquiry, uh, that um, there was something of an internal power struggle started to um, take place within the management committee of the Freedom Convoy. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I think anytime you throw a group of uh, of opinionated people together, you've got your, you know, like there's a few people within the core group that we don't associate with much anymore. Uh, egos or the drive for money or fame or or whatever it may be always seems to take effect and true colors seem to rise to the top. And and that's definitely happened. I, I'm un I hate to say that, but uh the two people that went out to Ottawa together in the cab of that red truck was Tamara Litch and myself. And those, we still stay unified as today. We are, uh, although we can't, we can't speak without lawyers present. We have to have con conversations through Evachippi. Hey, lawyers are sometimes useful, Chris. Yes, they are. I've dealt with so many lawyers in the last 17 months. I, I never would have imagined. <laughs> well, the, hopefully that, ha that, that experience has not totally ruined you. You no. seem to be uh, well and whole at this point. Um, but eventually, obviously, uh, 
what happened was was awful. It was a national and international travesty what occurred, the way that the the convoy broke up. And this this became, I remember seeing some of the Facebook posts uh, where the committee members and and you and some other people were in a room and you were saying, you know, this could be really bad. They, they could be coming for us today. That must have been really terrifying. Well, it was. I've spent, like I said before, I've spent 47 years of my life and never in handcuffs, never with a threat of arrest, never, never, never entered a jail cell or been charged or or anything like that. So to be arrested, to be handcuffed, to be placed in the back of a car and and hauled away to a jail cell for it. I mean, my, my time in jail in Ottawa City Jail was pretty minuscule compared to Tamara or Pat or George. Like 26 hours in a little eight, five by eight cell was long uh, enough, long enough to know it you was. don't like it much. Yeah. Yeah. Uncomfortable as can be. And, uh, and, uh, and I missed a lot of the, the police crackdowns. Of course, you know, I was arrested on the 17th. The order to start arresting protesters was given on the 18th and I was released on the, uh, I drove home on the 19th. I was ordered to leave the, the, the city of Ottawa within 24 hours, the province of Ontario within 72 hours. I basically went from the police station back to the hotel into a waiting car the next morning out to the outskirts of Ottawa where my truck had been parked since like January, February 7th, I believe. My my uh, my truck was taken out of downtown with, um, we'd heard some some stories of where there was going to be some violence and some action taken towards it because it was the, the truck that led the convoy. So we decided to get it out where it was safe, um, fired it up and headed home. So unfortunately... Yeah, I I read uh, one news report that said after you re- you're released from bail, uh, you were ready to go home. Uh, you said your organizing <laughs> days are over. Uh, that was in February of 2022. Um, uh, so th- this must have taken a lot out of you, and uh, not only emotionally and psychologically, even physically. You know, being away from your family and and all of the you know creature comforts and your routine. Uh, that, that, how long did it take you to sort of recover from that experience? I remember, uh, I don't remember exactly what day we reached the city of Swift current, but, uh, we, we came home to a homecoming. There was a lot of people there that were, uh, they were standing and a lot of hugs and a lot of tears. Uh, we, we, I went home back to the farm. I was lucky enough that my wife was with me in Ottawa for roughly two, two to three weeks of the time. So I had her with me, I had my son with me. We traveled home together. Uh, I remember the the next morning of being home. I was uh, I was watching TV in in the living room, drinking a coffee and staring at a TV that wasn't even turned on at four thirty in the morning. I didn't know what to do. I think I came home and crashed. It was uh, it was three weeks of you know the long days and cold temperatures, and then to to be arrested at the end, and then come home facing charges too, and the uncertainty of where we're going to be sitting, you know, after trial, and uh, that's a lot. I guess it's a lot to play on a guy, a lot more than I thought. So I don't know if I quite really crashed yet. It's been busy ever since where it's me work or whether you're going to functions or trying to keep awareness going and make sure people know the truth of what actually did happen in Ottawa. Notwithstanding the fact that you've been charged, you're facing a series of, of charges. People should know that uh, uh, you're going on trial in September. Um, but that has not stopped you from speaking out. You, you were active. Uh, you spoke at the the National Citizens Inquiry, and you also uh, testified at the, uh, well, what was a bit of a sham, in my opinion, the Emergencies Act hearing that occurred in, in Ottawa last year. What was what was that like? What was your take on that experience, the testifying in the Emergencies Act hearing? <laughs> well, we went out to Ottawa. I was subpoenaed to go back to Ottawa for uh, for the National Inquiry or for the POEC. And, uh, and I thought maybe I would be able to sit in the audience for a little while and watch some other members like Bridget Belton or Tom Marazzo or Danny Bulford go first. And then last minute, it was, uh, you know, the trucker side of the people were to hit the the stage on the Tuesday morning. And lo and behold, it was Chris Barber was the first, the first witness. So <laughs> I didn't, I got a couple days of listening to um, um, Peter Slowly, uh, police, ex-police chief. Um, and then it was right with me on the stage. So I got it. Uh, I didn't sleep a wink the night before, of course. And uh, that's intimidating. You know, you're on the world stage, you're... Uh, it's, it's new to you. I've never had to testify. I've never been in a courtroom before, to be honest with you. And then all of a sudden you're on the world stage and they're throwing questions at you. And all I can say is I answer them. I, I walk into the, to the courthouse. Then the morning Keith Wilson says to me, he said, did you sleep last night, Chris? I said, no, not a wink. And he said, good. That's better for testimony. He said, and he smiled and we walked into the, into the POEC. 
That's our good friend, Keith Wilson, uh, Alberta lawyer, a classmate of mine from University of Alberta Law School. Okay. You, said, you said the world was watching us and we had the legal right to a peaceful protest. And you still feel that way, don't you? Yeah, I believe there's there's never been a judge that's deemed the Ottawa protest illegal. Right. There's never been a judge. And even though, you know, Trudeau didn't didn't like us, I guess, and did everything in his power to have us removed, that still there was never a judge that deemed it illegal. Mm-hmm. So the 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 prosecution that's upcoming uh, at one point, uh, your lawyers filed a motion for a stay of proceedings, right? That happened, uh, I believe, in February of this year. Yes. And uh, but that was unsuccessful. Were you told why? Uh, it wasn't unsuccessful. Um, what happened was when I was arrested, they confiscated my cell phone. Okay. And and they then got a warrant to search the cell phone. And through Tamara Lich's bail process, um, they uh, somehow released all forty two hundred pages of my cell phone evidence into the court. And miraculously, oh, yes. CTV News just obtained them instantly. It was amazing how Glenn McGregor, who is, by the way, not with CTV anymore. He was just actually let go the other day. That's so sad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, we launched a charter application for a breach of privacy. And uh, in the proceedings of that, it, the ramifications of that or dealing with that at this time right now was just a little bit too much. We uh, we have a really good judge that we've we've drawn. And uh, a lot of things would have changed if I would have proceeded with those with that uh, with that charter application. So, so we uh, we pulled it back for now. Um, mm-hmm. We've always got the right to refile it after trial. We'll, we'll see yeah. how things go. There's a there's a very good case there. There's a lot yeah. of private conversations with my daughter and my wife, my ex wife, um, my my family, my business customers. That was released to the public, not to the public, but to mm-hmm. the media, I guess. So there should be some accountability held there, and there will be someday. And their explanation is this is just a whoops, right? Yeah, just it's, oh, sorry. It was released yeah. on a Thursday afternoon before a Friday long weekend. And it wasn't, uh, we couldn't do anything till the Monday morning. So, uh, yeah, that's what we expect from our government, isn't it? Yeah, it, it does sort of show, um, you know, or, or it, it does demonstrate the truth of what we learned, you know, as far back as Edward Snowden, that really we are living in an era where we don't have any private communications anymore. Uh, almost any conversation, anything we do, if we're using any type of digital uh, device, uh, we can be tracked and recorded and, and these things can be produced and used against us. And um, so, uh, I mean, for that reason alone, your case and the one involving Tamara is really, really important. Um, the I know you can't talk about some things about the case, but hopefully you can answer this question comfortably. The, the prosecutions of people like yourself and Mr. Bulford and Tamara Leach um, and, and of the guys who are, you know, sadly still in remand, uh, who were involved in uh, in the coot situation, uh, have been described by some people in this country and elsewhere as uh, political prosecutions uh, along the lines of what's happening to Mr. Trump right now in the United States. Uh, do you think that's a fair characterization that there's a, there's a political aspect to your case, um, that is being pushed very hard and that otherwise, um, you know, that in other words, that you're being made examples of, uh, to discourage, uh, other people in the future from perhaps, uh, conceiving of a convoy or some type of protest of this, of this size and nature. I would say a hundred percent, um, I don't know if we got into this or not, but my, our trial, Tamara Lich and I are tried, uh, co-accused, being tried together. Our trial starts on September 5th. Um, I've got uh, uh, seven indictable offenses ranging from mischief to uh, counseling to commit mischief, uh, obstruction of a peace off- or of a, of a court order, intimidation of a peace officer. There's a bunch of charges there. The, the funny part is our trial is actually a 16 day trial throughout the course of four weeks through into October 18th. So I don't, you might be a little more familiar with this, but what's the average murder trial? Well, I've, I've done, I've done a couple that have gone over a month, but I think the reason I suspect the reason why uh, your trial is going to take so long is because there's probably a lot of types of evidence, the admissibility of which are being challenged. Cause I know that you and Tamara are launching some charter arguments it will be, and yes. In order to exclude certain types of evidence, and uh, and those those types of uh, we call them voir dires, they're, they're trials within a trial concerning admissibility of certain evidence, 
And those tend to be very time consuming because they're, they are, they're actual trials into themselves. And oftentimes I'm certain in this case, the judge is going to go off and consider very carefully their decision before releasing something in writing. So that's okay. probably a reason why you have such a protracted period of time. And then even at the end of that, the judge is certain to reserve their decision. So unfortunately not to, if you thought that you were going to get a decision right at the end of that oh. period, uh, dream another dream because you're going yeah. to be waiting a while, I think. But uh, but I think this is going to be a very, very important uh, trial in, in, in Canadian law. And I'm pleased to hear that, uh, that you're confident in, in the judge that you have and that you're going to receive a fair and impartial hearing. Yes. I pray that that's, I, I pray that that's true. Um, so in retrospect, Chris, looking at this, I know um, you're very humbled uh, when people call you a hero. I, I know from meeting you, you're very self-effacing. You don't put on any airs. And I don't think anyone who knows you or has met you could describe you as somebody who's arrogant. Uh, yeah. but, but how do you deal with that when people sort of say, you know, uh, you know, sort of say to you, you know, thanks so much. And we're so proud of you and you're a hero. And, uh, how, how do you deal with that? Are you uncomfortable with that? Does that make you sort of uh, feel a little bit uncomfortable in your own skin? It's, it's been an acquired getting used to it. I, I'd say the, the, the first thing that really caught me off guard was being in Ottawa and working with the veterans that, that were there working with us. And the veterans would come up to me and commonly refer to me as a hero or shake my hand. And, and uh, that was uncomfortable because here, you know, here I am, I'm just a Canadian, a truck driver, a blue collar, you know, Canadian hard worker. And I've got somebody that actually fought a war, held a gun and, and fought for my freedom in another country and uh, it's calling me a, a hero. And then now I've, I've, I have a huge, huge high respect for law enforcement as well as our veterans. And that was one of the things that well, a priority for Tamara and I was to make sure that the veterans got uh, a lot of that donated money that was left over after the GoFundMe and the Give, Send, Go were all seized from the government. And uh, so that was the big one for me was learning to accept that in Ottawa from vets and then coming home and having people still tell me that today. Um, yeah, I don't see myself as that. I never will. I'm just appreciative that somebody wants to have a conversation with me or or, or think of me uh, or or praise for me. So that I'll, I'll carry on the conversation. You know me, I'm kind of a chatty guy. If you catch me in a corner, I'll talk your ear off as much as you will mine. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to ask you one other thing, Chris. You know, I, I've had the honor uh, of representing a lot of Canadian workers, um, you know, with companies like CP and CN and, and WestJet and, and ATCO and others. Um, and I've noticed, and I actually I said this publicly to the National Citizens Inquiry, I've noticed that the the mandates and the restrictions, like the ones that affected truck drivers, were were focused on working class Canadians. They impacted working class Canadians the most. Uh, they didn't affect the poor all that much. Certainly didn't affect the political class. Didn't affect the you know the elites. Affected the laptop class to some degree. But the working class Canadians, all of this seem to be focused upon demoralizing and even dehumanizing uh, the working class Canadians. Um, and that seems to be for a purpose that's starting to unfold. Would you agree with that? Or do you think that's a quote unquote uh, conspiracy theory? No, I would I would 100% agree with you. There's so many Canadians, and I think that's why we resonated with so many Canadians across this country. Uh, mom and pop businesses were told to close their doors and basically go home and go broke slowly, while Walmart and Home Depot and all these big chains were able to walk. You know, there was requirements for a house for Christmas. You People were arrested. You couldn't go play uh, rink on a skating rink outside or basket, outdoor basketball, but you could go to Walmart where there was 200 people. As long as you followed those arrows, right, then you were safe. And I think another one one person that I've met throughout this whole movement is Chris Scott from the Whistle Stop Cafe yeah. in Mira, Alberta. Like, Chris is a pioneer. I remember having a conversation with Chris on the phone and he was debating not going to Ottawa. And I said, look at man, like, you're one of the guys that started this whole thing. It's because of guys like you that stood up you need to be in the truck and you need to be coming with us to be part of this. And he agreed to. I want to get to our reading list. We close off our show with, uh, with the reading list. And um, I'm going to go first. If you can think of a book or two, it doesn't have to be a book, maybe a website. Uh, it could be any resource that you think would be useful to people uh, in, in, you know, getting a better handle on, on you and who you are and, and the convoy uh, or even just something inspirational. 
So maybe mm. think about that, spin that around in, in your uh, cerebral cortex for a few minutes. I'm going to go first, and I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, my choice of books today are probably not going to surprise anyone. Um, the first one is, of course, to Mary Leach's book called Hold the Line. And there's a lot of Chris Barber in that book. Hold the Line, My Story from the Heart of the Freedom Convoy. I had the pleasure of meeting Tamara last year, uh, last August, when she received a, an award uh, uh, for her courage uh, from the uh, Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. And uh, she's a she's a wonderful lady. Uh, and uh, again, like Chris, um, no airs whatsoever, very humble, uh, very, very intelligent and uh, eloquent person too. She gave a just an incredible speech, which I was glad to be present for. Anyway, the book is called Hold the Line, My Story from the Heart of the Freedom Convoy. It was only released a couple of months ago. Uh, and uh, the description here is the media said that Canadian truckers were Russian agents controlled by Vladimir Putin. Uh, Justin Trudeau called them extremists and the government put the country under martial law to stop them. But what's the real story? Uh, for the first time, the woman at the heart of the trucker convoy speaks out. Uh, she's a passionate organizer, loving mother and grandmother, proud Métis and proud Albertan, defiant political prisoner, jailed for daring to criticize the government. And so her new book, uh, Hold the Line, is the inside scoop of what really happened. Uh, you've heard from the media and the convoy's critics, now hear the truth from the woman who inspired the world and made Justin Trudeau blink. More than blink, uh, she made him leave town. Um, but uh, the second book is uh, a book from uh, a man who's actually uh, been on the show before. He's a, he's a podcaster and uh, and journalist named Andrew Lawton. You might have had the chance to speak with him, Chris. If you haven't been on a show, you probably will be at some point. Yep. And he's written a book called The Freedom Convoy, an inside story of three weeks that shook the world. This was released about a year ago. The description is, in January 2022, a small group of Canadian truckers fed up with nearly two years of COVID restrictions and a new vaccine mandate for cross-border essential workers, decided to take their frustrations directly to the nation's capital. The Freedom Convoy quickly took on a life of its own as hundreds of trucks and thousands of protesters made the journey to Parliament Hill. For the next three weeks, the trucker convoy led a protest unlike any other, complete with bouncy castles, Pig roast. I forgot to ask you about the pig roast. Oh boy! And late night dance parties. But to the media and government, it was a hate-filled insurrection requiring the unprecedented invocation of the Federal Emergencies Act. Uh, in this timely and provocative book, author Andrew Lawton combines his own on-the-ground reporting and countless hours of interviews with the Freedom Convoy's organizers and volunteers to tell for the first time the whole story of the convoy. So those are, uh, and there's one more actually I want to mention. Uh, this is a book uh, which uh, I found very interesting. I was, again, it was released about a year ago from Tom Guigan and Rick Gill. It's called Eyewitness to Deceit. And this Prime Minister Trudeau's info war on the Freedom Convoy. This is a book that's taken from a different uh, perspective. It has a preface by uh, Corporal Danny Bolford of the RCMP. Um, and it says here, essentially, uh, a fifth generation style information war was launched by the government of Canada against the Freedom Convoy 22 before it had even reached Ottawa. And Chris talked about this earlier in, in the program. This campaign was active throughout the presence of the convoy in Ottawa and continued after it was violently dispersed. He says that, that the willful lies about the convoy were perpetrated by the Prime Minister, various ministers of the Crown, senators, MPs, chiefs of police and reporters. He says, while mistakes are possible in the fog of the war, the most serious lies continued well after the facts have been established. In other words, the lies were to support a campaign of deceit. So this book tells a bit of a different story about the information wars, trying to control the narrative and make people think uh, or believe this lie that the convoy was some sort of insurrection that was, uh, you know, that this this uh, domestic terrorist group had occupied the capital. Uh, and to and to sort of uh, propagandize that message when the real truth was was uh, witnessed by honest journalists uh, like like Rod and Heather Posack and others who, when they told the truth, uh, were 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 canceled, fired, or worse. Uh, so those are my three books, uh, Chris. Are there any uh, sources that, that you would recommend for uh, our, our our viewers, our audience? 
the one that I'll throw you off, it's not a book, it's a documentary. It's called Unacceptable. Uh, Eagle Vision, Eagle Vision uh, Video Productions, uh, Ben and Johanna Hobb out of Fort St. John, British Columbia. I'm not in this documentary a lot, to the truth be told. I basically blew them off after when they wanted interviews and, um, and being freshly out of jail and with fresh charges on it, I didn't feel that I needed to do it. You know where people can time. find that though, Chris? Where, so where? if you Google Unacceptable or Eagle Vision Video Productions, uh, you will find it fairly quickly. Uh, I've done a, a really, it, it's something I watched in Calgary a few months ago and I fell in love with it. It portrays the exact story right from the start and right through the end. And it goes through all the government narratives, you know, even the Terry Fox statue, how the government said we desecrated it, which we never, we never did. Um, it hits every angle and it is, my mother watched it with me. I've watched it about 12 times. It took my mother and my father to it in Saskatoon. My mother was beside me and she said, Chris, I think that movie touched on every range of emotions I have. I was happy. I was sad. I was angry. And then didn't just, you know, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. I've watched it 12 times now, Leighton, and I still, to this day, get emotional when I watch it. Yeah. Well, sadly, this COVID story, um, the, the story of the pandemic was just the beginning. Uh, we're starting to see the fuller story unfold. But that only makes what you and the other people who are involved, every person, not just the high-level organizers like yourself, every person who is involved in the convoy, everyone who experienced it, it only makes what they did so much more relevant and important uh, and, and historical, really. Uh, uh, and so uh, I have to say to you, Chris, uh, you really are a hero to to me and, and many Canadians. I know that that makes you a little bit uh, shy and embarrassed, but, um, you know, you fit my definition of, of a hero any day of the week. I'm so grateful for your, for your sacrifice and your courage and your vision and and to do this for for all of Canadians i know that uh, it was done in at great risk uh, maybe you didn't think you were risking as much as you were at the time but you certainly knew that there was a great sacrifice to be made and you made it and you helped many many people and you inspired many people so thank you so much for all that you have done and uh, and thank you so much for being our special guest here on Grey Matters. It's been an absolute I, pleasure talking with you today. I couldn't couldn't be happier being on here, Leighton. It was uh, it was awesome having you. 